Hello and welcome to the very first Grattan podcast for 2020. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan, and I'm talking to you in the middle of one of the most extraordinary summers in living memory, a seemingly never-ending story of fire, hail, smoke, dust. Dozens of lives have been lost, thousands of homes destroyed, innumerable livestock and wildlife killed. And in the midst of the tragedy, the devastation and the despair, a big question arises. Might the summer of 2020 be a turning point on climate politics and policies in Australia? And so to discuss the political and policy implications of the fires, I'm joined today by not one, but two Grattan gurus. First, Grattan's CEO, John Daly. G'day, John. Hello. And John and I are also joined by Grattan Senior Associate, Emily Mullane. Emily, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. John and Emily have published a piece, which you can read on our website, which explores some of these questions. But let me start, John, with the very big question. Is this a turning point on climate policy? The short answer, I think, is that we don't yet know. But it's also fair to say that the signs are not great. Um, No one has yet accused the Prime Minister of going too far or too fast uh, in terms of amending Australia's climate policy. And there's no question that we need to do so. Essentially, anyone that you talk to about this, both nationally and internationally, says the world needs to get to pretty close to zero emissions by 2050. Uh, Australia is projected to have very little real change in its emissions between 2020 and 2030. Uh, And if you are serious about getting to zero in 2050, then you'd be expecting to see a material decline between 2020 and 2030 as indeed many countries are projecting and many countries have seen over the last decade. And that's what we do not see projected in Australia. And we don't, frankly, have policies in place that would lead us to expect particularly big reductions in emissions over the next decade. Okay. Well, I'll come to you, Emily, shortly to drill into some some of the particulars. But let me just test you a bit more on that Second point, John, you say this should be a policy turning point. But when I listen to the government, the message seems to be twofold. Firstly, we are, we Australia, are going to meet and beat our emissions commitments internationally and that we will not and should not do anything that will cost jobs or harm the economy. So why do we need policy change? Well, I think for two reasons. Uh, Firstly, in terms of those targets, uh, we'll only clearly meet and beat them if we use the so-called Kyoto carryover. Uh, So the fact that Australia got a really good deal in Kyoto that counted um, uh, some uh, stopping doing some land clearing that had recently been ramped up um, is the only reason we wound up with what you might describe as a very soft target in the first place. Uh, And we're intending, or at least the the government's current rhetoric is that they will reserve the right to use um, the the hangover of that previous deal. But the underlying emissions, I think, are the crucial thing here, uh, because the underlying year-on-year-on-year emissions aren't moving very much. And they're not, on the government's own numbers, they're not projected to move very much. 
Uh, and so if you are serious about getting to uh, zero emissions by 2050, you would need to be doing a lot more over the next 10 years. And as I said, if you have policies in place and those policies are projected to produce very little in the way of actual year-on-year emissions, then you know that you don't have uh, enough in the way of serious policy in place. Now, in terms of of can we do this without any impact on the Australian economy, um, the short answer is no. And we all need to be a little bit honest about that. Uh, If you are going to reduce emissions, then at the very least in the short run, some things are going to cost a little bit more. But it's also worth remembering that we are thinking about the costs of inaction. We have just had a somewhat dramatic demonstration of the costs to Australia from a one-off event that has certainly been made worse, more severe, quite possibly wouldn't have happened anything like this extent without the climate change that the world has already seen. Uh, And of course, those costs are in human lives. They're in the lives of both animal livestock and in terms of wildlife. Their costs in terms of um, the natural environment itself. There's a lot of places that are going to be a lot less pleasant to visit. Uh, And of course, then that has an economic cost. There are farms that are going to make less money. Uh, Australia's tourism uh, industry has been very significantly impacted. You add all of this together, and we are clearly talking billions and billions of dollars, and that's the cost of inaction. So to say that we will not do anything about climate change unless it's going to cost nothing clearly has the calculus in the wrong place. And that is, in fact, almost invariably true of policy change. It is almost impossible to find a win-win policy. It's quite possible to find win-lose-less policies. Uh, So things where the benefits outweigh the costs and indeed the art form of public policy is finding those kind of things. And I think climate change is a perfect example of something where the costs are no doubt going to be material and without doubt some people are going to find jobs that they're currently doing no longer exist, but other jobs will get created. That's in the nature of economies. Um, Overall, however, uh, Australia contributing to global action to reduce emissions and therefore reduce climate change uh, looks like a pretty good uh, trade. And indeed, that was the whole point of the Stern Review that was done in the UK now uh, over a decade ago to point out that Uh, However large the costs of um, doing something about reducing emissions might be, they are much smaller than the costs of doing nothing. And as I said, we are currently in a world in which Australia may not be doing nothing, but it's, it's not doing anything like enough. Okay. So, Emily, can I bring you in there? We need big policy change on climate. Crises often lead to big policy change. You've done a lot of work on this. What does history tell us about crises and policy turning points? History tells us that crises can lead to change, but kind of economic parlance, they're neither necessary nor sufficient for change to happen. There has to be something else. Um, and it was really one of the things that stimulated the article that John and I wrote last week was this questioning that's been from a number of different people about will this summer, will this crisis lead to policy change, and they've done that through analogies 
will this be Australia's Pearl Harbor? Will this be Australia's Sandy Hook, our Chernobyl, our Port Arthur? Now, they're all obviously quite different examples in different um, different countries and under different leadership, um, and we can talk through some of the mechanical parts of those. Um, but I think the key point that history tells us is that of itself crisis isn't enough. And, in fact, most change is incremental in public policy. We see long periods in which policies are introduced and then they're tweaked, parts of it are wound back, different administrations come in and have their own agendas. Um, and so incremental change happens. Um, but when there have been big policy changes in Australia, it's not because there's necessarily been a crisis, but because there've been some other kind of element, whether it is um, a political will to do something, there's been a confluence of interests between different individuals at a policy elite level. There's been a large degree of public sentiment in favour of a change. These are some of the elements that go towards substantial policy change happening. What substantial policy changes have you got in mind in Australia's recent history which saw that sort of confluence of circumstance, political will and incrementalism, if you like? So to take one of the examples that was discussed in our piece last week around gun reform following the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, um, this was John Howard acting decisively, quickly, and at potential significant political cost. You know, he, he risked his own skin in doing this. Um, but what we saw there was an absence of a similar level of stakeholder interest as there was with the National Rifle Association in the US. Um, so that's a recent example that we talk about in, in the piece we did last week. But a couple of other examples, um, economic examples, under the Hawke and Keating governments in the 1980s and 1990s, we saw a range of big economic reforms. Um, and one of those that I've spent more than enough time thinking about is superannuation, the introduction of an entirely new system of private saving for retirement. Now, we can have a separate, and it is an entirely separate debate about what have been the consequences of that reform and whether we think it was a good one or not. But the fact of it being an entirely new system that was introduced um, was in part because of an acceptance by the government, and I'm talking particularly about the Hawke government in the 1980s, that things needed to be done differently. Wages needed to be contained. Inflation was running double-digit levels, which is hard for us to imagine today. And so instead of seeking wage rises continually, there was an acceptance by both a Labor government but the union movement and its leadership that wages could be contained through a mechanism, through a trade-off mechanism. Um, and that trade-off was instead of a wage rise today, I get a wage rise through superannuation later in life. Um, so that's a big example under Hawke and Keating. Um, we could also talk about a more recent example under John Howard being the GST. 
um, the introduction of an entirely new consumption tax. Um, and that was, again, at, at significant political risk, so willing to spend political capital. And maybe, John, you could talk a bit more to GST. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they're both interesting examples of, of ideas that have been around for a very long time before they happened. Um, both of them probably happened, as, as Emily points out, because um, there were significant and powerful lobby groups that came together that were supporting them at the time that they were being pushed through. So in the case of the GST, you have a whole series of business groups uh, that one of the reasons they liked it was we had this kind of messy patchwork of wholesale goods taxes, um, different things being charged at different rates, um, and we replaced that with a more or less universal system um, that you know might have had introduced its own administrative issues, but um, overall, in many ways, simplified things, um, uh, and which also uh, provided a, a, a new and relatively stable tax base. So, and because it was being guaranteed to the states, um, the states became very enthusiastic about it. So that created another lobby group that was. Um, in effect, behind the reform. Plus, you had a government that was, you know, frankly, looking for a centrepiece economically, and this fitted the rhetoric of providing a centrepiece. So I think it's a it's a lovely example of something where the work had been done uh, about why this was a good idea, and that had been sitting around the the, Asp um, uh, the uh, 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 Asprey report had recommended it. Um, I think some 26 years previously. Uh, so this was not exactly a new idea. It's something that people had thought and talked a lot about. Then there were lobby groups that you know were supporting it. And then on top of that, you had a political leadership that was keen to make it happen. Uh, and I think a lot of policy reform looks like that, where all of those, or at least a number of those things, come together. I guess what we're talking about in this case, however, is to what extent do particular events precipitate change? So events like... Port Arthur, Chernobyl, Pearl Harbor, Sydney Hook, um, how do they precipitate change? And to take the Port Arthur question that Emily's already been talking about, you know, there have been a lot of people saying that Australia's gun laws needed to be reformed for a long time. And indeed, interestingly, John Howard was one of those. He had always believed uh, that our gun laws were too lax. Uh, but there's no question that he, that he personally, deliberately, uh, used the Port Arthur massacre to create an urgency for legal and legislative change. And in a world in which there were substantial lobby groups that were pretty upset about that, uh, and he was essentially using the fact that an event was very recent in people's minds to create an urgency uh, to get change to happen despite the interventions of those lobby groups. Well, let me just butt in there and, and make an obvious distinction all the examples you're talking of are of policy reform successes. That is, the uh, Hawke-Keating government succeeded in introducing a new and dramatically different superannuation system to Australia, the GST under Howard, uh, gun laws after Port Arthur. All of these indeed were uh, substantial policy reforms. I detect from both of you a pessimism about this dramatic event of the summer of 2020 stimulating substantial policy reform. Why the difference, Emily? I think we have to be very careful in saying that there are a particular set of criteria 
in which you overlay that on a, onto a particular crisis and you will either get policy reform or not. But some of the features that we see from those historical examples where change did occur appear to be lacking in the early stages, and we are very much at early stages. Uh, indeed, the fires are still burning and we need to, we need to bear that in mind. Um, and part of that is a decisiveness about acting and acting fairly quickly. Um, and to return to Port Arthur, we saw that in a matter of days that new legislation was being prepared. Um, we don't see that same type of urgency in the way that Scott Morrison has responded so far. Um, and indeed, another feature that we see where big policy change has happened is where ministers, prime ministers, are seeking to make their mark quite clearly in setting out a big agenda and in wanting to do things. And I don't know about you, John, but I don't see that happening. And it's been a, a week or two now since we've talked about this. I don't see that as having changed. No, I think that's right. You don't see a big shift in um, uh, either rhetoric or in policy. Uh, I think, and I think that point about rhetoric is quite important. I mean, if you look at these previous crises, um, the leaders who've, who've led change have very clearly and very deliberately stepped up the rhetoric uh, in the immediate aftermath of whatever the event was and said, given Pearl Harbor, you know, America now has no choice and, you know, et cetera, we need to. You know, we're part of the war, so to speak. Um, uh, I don't think we've seen that step up in rhetoric. Um, you know, the closest we've seen is is a prime minister saying, "Well, you know, our policies on climate change need to evolve." Now, you know, I can't see anyone rallying to the barricades behind behind that one as a piece of rhetoric. Uh, and then, in terms of of actual substantive change, we've seen no significant shift from the government in terms of what their policy might be. With one exception, and quite an interesting exception, I think if you go back three months, the government was very clear that it was going to rely on its Kyoto carryover credits um, in terms of meeting its targets, and it has very clearly signalled that it may well, in fact, not do so over the last week or two. Now, actually, in the scheme of things, that is quite a material shift, which tells you just how large those carryover credits are. Um, uh, and just how good a deal uh, was done back in 2005 at Kyoto, um, uh, if you think of it as a, quote, good deal. It certainly was a deal that meant that Australia had to do much less than it might have done otherwise. Um, so I think there's been a bit of a shift, but we certainly haven't seen a significant shift in terms of um, what Australia might do about it. And indeed, we've seen rhetoric reaffirming that we will do nothing uh, if a single job is going to be lost. And as I said, that strikes me as a completely unrealistic policy position. If we are serious, then by definition, a job is going to be lost somewhere. It's There is no such thing as action on climate change that doesn't cost somebody something. And I think, John, the, the word that you used earlier on was this, we need to be honest about some of these things. And there's a reluctance, it seems, um, not just in, in this example that we're talking about, but more generally over the last few years, to actually say, look, there are there are some hard truths here and there are going to be some losers, whether they be short-term or long-term losers from this, um, but we think things need to be done. And I think that's why crises are so important because 
the crisis enables you as a leader to say, look, we're in a world in which there's going to be losers no matter what we do. And, and you're in a world in which those losers, I mean, if we take the bushfires, those losers are pretty obvious um, and they're across the community. And some people have you know, lost their lives and, and many people have, have lost their livelihoods. Um, so it's in that environment that it's much easier to stand up and say, well, of course there will be costs. Um, but you know, many people have already borne much larger costs than that, and therefore this is why we need to act. And and then you can kind of turn the rhetoric around because if you try and do policy change in a world in which there are no losers at all, you are guaranteed to get very little actual change. And yet we haven't heard that sort of rhetorical change that might lead to the sort of policy change that we're calling for uh, this summer. Does that lead us inexorably to a pretty depressing conclusion, John, that we need to await yet another crisis before we get the sort of substantive action we wish for? Well, I think that there are two things that might um, nevertheless come out of this. Um, One is that we might see changes from state governments. uh, And the other is that we might see changes in public opinion that then has flow-on effects. So in terms of state governments, look, we the state governments have already um, all uh, said that their target is to get to zero emissions by 2050. So in fact, Australia has a national policy of zero emissions uh, by 2050. It just doesn't happen to be the Commonwealth government's policy. Um, we have certainly seen a step up in the rhetoric from state governments about um, the way that the bushfires show that we need to take more serious action on climate change. We haven't seen significant shifts in policy from them. That, in a sense, I'm less worried about from state governments um, in terms of whether this is a turning point because, um, I mean, New South Wales and Victoria premiers are literally still in the business of day-to-day managing an ongoing crisis um, in ter- given that they are responsible for most of what happens on the ground. Um, we've seen both of those premiers on a routine basis standing next to heads of emergency services, you know, telling people about where they should be evacuating and so on. So I'm not surprised um, that they haven't done as much in terms of actual policy shift, but they have certainly been ramping up the rhetoric around the need to do something. Uh, Of course, one of the dirty secrets of Australian constitutional law is that, in fact, the states have all the levers they could possibly need uh, to uh, put in place a comprehensive set of policies to reduce Australia's emissions to zero. Uh, They don't have to wait for the Commonwealth Government. Uh, And in a world in which um, there's an emergency, that makes it clear that something needs to be done um, uh, and therefore the states have got more moral um, authority to do something. It wouldn't surprise me if they started to move a bit faster. They've certainly been making noises in that direction for quite some time. And it's at least possible that over the next month or two, we will see them doing something more serious on climate change, quite possibly with each other. Uh, my guess is at the moment, probably not with the Commonwealth Government. Potentially a really interesting shift in terms of conventions under the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, we forget that there is no head of power for the Commonwealth around energy. Um, it is still a state matter. Uh, and indeed, the the energy legislation we have, the National Energy 
um, market is in fact set up by state legislation, uh, by South Australian legislation as it so happens, which is then mirrored by legislation of all of the other states. So to the extent that the states want to change how Australia's electricity market works, they can do that. Um, to the extent that they want to put um, policies in place that um, effectively put a price on emissions in other areas such as um, industrial processes in transport and so on, it's well within their constitutional power to do so. And Emily, what about a sort of uh, rising up of uh, popular sentiment uh, on emissions and climate change policy? Is there evidence that the bushfires have made a difference in that regard? Mm, So we've seen just this week polling has come out where Australians were asked to rank their top three priorities in public policy and climate has overtaken the economy to be the most important concern that they have. Economy still comes second uh, and then healthcare. Um, We need to be careful in in, in tying together uh, a change in public sentiment and any kind of causal link that that will produce change. And indeed, sometimes you got to do things that are politically unpopular. However, um, I would bet you that the, the big political parties are doing a whole lot of polling at the moment about the importance of the environment and in different electorates and in testing what that means for changes in policy. Um, so I think it's a case of watch this space. Um, but my sense is that we will see some response to the change in public sentiment because it's been so pronounced. And John, is that where we draw hope from all this? You seem to be painting a picture of state governments and the broader population moving ahead towards substantial climate change policy reform, possibly leaving the Commonwealth Government of Australia behind. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that um, the leaders of our policy have have led wherever the people led them. Um, uh, And so if we look, for example, at same-sex marriage, it's a really good example of something where public opinion wound up getting quite a long way in front of political opinion, uh, but nevertheless, ultimately, change happened. Um, Indeed, precisely because of that public opinion, change happened. Uh, I think it's interesting, if you look at these kind of crises historically, um, and if you look at public opinion much more generally, it doesn't kind of really tend to change that much, that fast, even in the in the face of a really significant event. But nevertheless, significant events do push it along. Uh, and it's also a situation in which public concern about climate change has been gradually rising over the last you know, decade or so. Um, and more and more people are concerned about it. I think that what will be crucial about this summer is that I think this is the first summer in which climate change became personal. So up until now, uh, climate change was about polar bears, you know, on on ice flows, and it was maybe about a few remote Pacific islands uh, and, and so on. And however important those issues might be, they didn't affect a lot of Australians Personally, they affected a lot of Pacific Islanders very personally, as um, we found out at the last Pacific Island Forum, but but it didn't affect Australians. Now, of course, we have just been through a couple of months in which, um, you know, roughly about 12, 13 million Australians have been living in cities and in in regional areas uh, in which their lives have been quite significantly affected by smoke. 
Um, many of them couldn't really go outside during the day on some days. Lots of activities were prescribed. Um, public swimming pools were closed. If you hung your washing on the line, you had to bring it inside and then rewash it because it stank of smoke. And this is for 12 or 13 million people. All of a sudden, their lives have actually become quite different. And not just for a day, but for months on end. Uh, people who've had health problems, um, uh, significant increase in the number of people who wound up in, in hospital emergency departments. You know, these are all very personal things. And everybody has a story. Um, and so in that world, you're more likely to change public opinion precisely because it affects people's lives in a very personal way. Um, so I don't think that we will see, you know, 30% of Australians change their mind as a result of, you know, by, you know, next week as a result of what's happened. But what I think we will see is we'll see a little bit of a spike and we will see a continued substantial momentum. And of course, one of the things about democracies, they're not designed to get to the answer efficiently. They're designed to get to a good answer eventually. Uh, and one of the ways they do that is public opinion gradually shifts to the point where it becomes politically advantageous uh, to take a particular position. And I think we can certainly wonder whether that might happen here in the same way that if you had brought forwards same-sex marriage legislation 15 years ago, that would have been very courageous. And when it was brought forward um, uh, a couple of years ago, that was more um, almost despite what the government wanted to do. Um, uh, now we're in a world in which um, bringing forwards um, climate change, uh, legislation to reduce emissions has been not obviously a political advantage over the next couple of years as, uh, as public opinion changes. It may well become politically advantageous to bring forward that kind of legislation. Of course, that's the world that John Howard found himself in uh, just before he, in fact, wound up losing an election. He, he wound up essentially moving on climate change because public opinion had started to move. Uh, it's very possible that the personal effects of this um, year's fires, plus, of course, everything that everybody has seen on their television screens and, and what they know about what's happened to others, will lead to a shift in public opinion and that will, I suspect, inevitably, in the long run, change what governments do. I think at the end of a, in the middle of a terribly depressing summer, that is a slightly uplifting note that you've injected into the conversation and we might finish it there, John. John, thank you. Emily, thank you too for your insights and your expertise today. Uh, I should say that there's plenty more on the policy and political implications of this extraordinary sum, uh, summer on our website, grattan.edu.au. So, listeners, it's all there, live and free. Go for it. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening.